0: Welcome back. It's an honour to be in your feed once again. This is, of course, MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top stories in regulatory affairs with the assistance of our team of driven specialist reporters whose insights are today as much as ever a must-have for those working in the field. My name is James Paniki. I'm an MLEX senior editor and I've got a question for you. Let me assume that you're listening to this podcast on the Friday and that you're planning to place an online booking with a restaurant over the weekend. As you allow your eye to wander over the online reviews offered by your favourite restaurant booking portal, answer me this, can you trust the rating? And how have the results been ranked? In Japan, a court has drawn a proverbial line in the sand on this issue. It has found that Tabalog's interference with its search engine algorithm was a violation of the country's antitrust law. But how much do consumers actually care?
1: Even if, uh, say, a search rank um, like Tabelag did manipulate to lower a restaurant that pays a lot of money to it to win access, Maybe the end user may actually prefer interference. That lowers ranks of, saying, ad-paying businesses in order to take away the bias from the advertisement.
0: And we'll bring you that chat with Mx's Toko Sekiguchi on the historic court verdict in Japan in just over 10 minutes from now. First up, though, to the United States. And remember how in the past we've told you that the chances of the U.S. developing federal privacy legislation were very slim indeed, And we weren't alone in thinking that. The flurry of activity among state lawmakers to establish data privacy and protection regimes was driven in part by the lack of federal leadership. But are the times a-changing? Well, possibly. There is indeed a comprehensive US national privacy bill speeding through Congress, although that is set to slow down over the peak summer months. And to tease out this issue, I'm joined now by Senior Correspondent Amy Miller and Chief Global Digital Risk Correspondent Mike Swift, and they're both speaking to us from San Francisco. Mike and Amy, welcome back. Good to be here, James.
2: Thanks for having us, James.
0: Now, Mike, can I start with you and ask, what's different about the American Data Privacy and Protection Act as the federal legislative proposal is known?
3: So lawmakers in the United States have been uh, proposing a federal privacy law for something like 20 years, but um, for many years the efforts have been held up on sort of two big dis- areas of disagreement. And one was the ability to bring private class action lawsuits, and the other is um, whether state laws should be preempted. And what's different about this bill, um, the the nut that got cracked. Um, quite surprisingly, was that there appears to be a workable compromise, which um, is largely palatable to both Democrats and Republicans on both of these issues, preemption and private right of action. And that's what allowed uh, the bill to get out of committee last week.
0: And Mike, staying with you, could I get you to explain the proposed compromises over uh, private lawsuits and preemption of state privacy laws and how they make this bill different?
3: Sure, so there are some pretty um, strict guardrails on private right of action, that it would be an enforcement mechanism that would be uh, kind of subservient to um, state attorneys general and, and particularly to the Federal Trade Commission. There would be a two-year waiting period before anyone could file a lawsuit. And people that did want to file suits would have to essentially uh, run them past the uh, federal and state enforcers before they could file. And so all those things are real limitations on private right of action. And on preemption of state laws, um, some laws such as the uh, Illinois uh, Biometric Information Privacy Act, BIPA, which has been used to great effect uh, against a number of companies, would not be preempted. But um, in the, the recent state laws that have been passed by uh, the states of uh, California, Connecticut, Virginia, and I'm blanking on the uh, Utah and uh, Colorado, I got the list, uh, would be largely preempted. There would be a little carve out that would keep parts of the California law intact but largely these would all be preempted. So there would be one national standard and Republicans and industry really like that.
0: Well, this raises the obvious question of whether this proposed federal bill would be stronger, uh, tougher than the current existing Californian privacy laws. Uh, What do you think about that, Amy?
2: Well, most notably, uh, the ADPPA it, it empowers California's brand new privacy agency, the California Privacy Protection Agency, to enforce the law within the state that that was the big compromise allegedly. Well, uh, the California uh, Privacy Protection Agency is, is not happy with that compromise. and today they actually formally voted to oppose the legislation and they had public comment from a lot of speakers. And uh, John Leibowitz, the former FTC chair under the Obama administration, in public comments argued that the ADPPA was actually stronger, that it has stronger civil rights protections, that it's stronger for children. And then the response was from the uh, CPPA's, the board's, excuse me, the agency's executive director, Ashkan Sultani, who also worked at the FTC uh, during the Obama administration, arguing that no, in fact, it was actually weaker than the um, California privacy law. It doesn't grant the same protections at all. One other thing that they seem to mention often at this hearing was, at this meeting, excuse me was that the California privacy law is more interoperable with international privacy laws, such as uh, Europe's General Data Protection Regulation. And that was something that Ashken Soltani really tried to drive home at at the meeting today.
0: Okay, so that raises the question, Amy, of how does the ADPPA actually compare to the GDPR that you mentioned just now? Would this bill be advancing the state of the art in global privacy protection, or would it be following the GDPR?
2: Uh, in many ways, it's following the GDPR. Uh, it, it has the similar requirements of data minimization under the AD, ADPPA. All these acronyms. <laughs> but the ADPPA is actually more prescriptive. Uh, the GDPR says that consent is one of one of the lawful ways to process data. Uh, but the ADPPA is more situational. It would allow uh, data to be collected and used if it's necessary for one of 17 permitted Purposes, and that's like preventing fraud, or completing transactions, or authenticating users, and everything else is, is prohibited. So that that's one one key difference. And then when it comes to enforcement, uh, the ADPPA would elevate the FTC's Division of Privacy to, to more of a separate bureau that would have more staff and, and more resources. So it would be more in line with the Irish Data Protection Authority. But when it comes to fines and enforcement, the 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 differences are a little more unclear. Uh, the GDPR is clear that four percent of a firm's revenue, annual revenue, would, would is the fine for violating the GDPR, and it's unclear right now what what the fines under the ADPPA would be. Um, the proposal says that uh, that includes penalties of up to ten thousand dollars per violation. But but as Mike laid out, there's this sort of three tiered layers of of regulation. So. Whether it's the FTC or state AGs or even these private consumer class actions, it's really unclear now what what sort of fines or violations companies could be up against for potential violations.
0: And Amy, of course, on this podcast, um, in fact, speaking to you on several occasions, we've said that it was very unlikely that Congress would act on the need for a federal uh, privacy act. But here we are today. So what do you think is pushing Congress to act now?
2: I think the tipping point was Frances Haugen's testimony uh, before Congress last fall. She was a former um, executive at Facebook, and she came out with a report uh, that Facebook knew that uh, its its news feeds and algorithms were were harming kids, uh, hurting their social esteem, leading to more suicides, self harm, anorexia, bulimia. All kinds of of bad things, but they ignored it, and that they really pushed profits over over safety. And uh, since since those revelations, uh, Congress has really been pushing for for kids' privacy. So you've got this uh, ADPPA, which has new restrictions on targeted advertising for children, and then you have the Senate also proposing bills that would expand protections under current federal privacy law for for children. And then another bill uh, that would require companies to be um, have a standard of care and duty when it comes to uh, protecting children and, and safety measures. So they're really coming at it from two different perspectives. The House is pushing this more comprehensive bill, and the Senate is is focusing on these these targeted bills. And and that that's probably going to come to a head at some point as these bills move forward.
0: Of course, all of this detail counts for little if it doesn't get through Congress, which Mike raises the question, is the legislation going to pass?
3: Well, you know, um, up until last week, it really did seem like this bill was just absolutely galloping through Congress, and it got out of committee by an overwhelming 53 to 2 vote. It looked like nothing could stop it, but what we're hearing from lobbyists and and, uh, other insiders the last few days is that um, the House staffers who were doing the real grunt work of drafting the legislation, who had been working nights and weekends on this, there were very intensive negotiations going on, that's all stopped and that... Uh, the decision has been that um, w- within the House that everyone's going to take a breather until uh, during August and uh, decompress a little bit, and then they're going to come back in September. And at that time, we may or may not get a vote in the House. Um, but even if there is a vote in the House, there's some a huge obstacle lying ahead in the U.S. Senate Where um, the chair of the Senate Commerce Committee, Senator Maria Cantwell of Washington State, has said, This bill is too weak on enforcement and I'm not going to support it. And there's little sign, no signs that people are hearing now that she's going to back down. And she essentially has a veto. So, There's not a whole lot of optimism that uh, this thing, which um, has gone farther than any comprehensive privacy bill in the United States, is is actually going to get over the finish line this year. But on the other hand, um, as someone said to me, I was just talking to a Washington Insider earlier today, and she was saying, well, if the House votes for it, it's going to put a lot of pressure from other senators who are in favor of privacy law, they're going to really turn up the heat on Cantwell to do something this year. So you never know. And, you know, four months ago, we thought this thing was absolutely dead. And then the stars aligned and all of a sudden it wasn't dead. So you really never know. Um, Right now, it doesn't look real likely that it's going to get through this year. But, you know, it all remains to be seen. So um, we'll pick this up again in September, I think, is the bottom line.
0: Mike, Amy, these are really significant developments. Thank you so much for keeping us up to speed.
2: Thanks, James. Thanks,
0: James. Mike Swift is MLEX's chief global digital risk correspondent. Amy Miller is a senior reporter covering data privacy and security, as well as antitrust and other tech related issues. They were speaking to us from our offices in San Francisco and Just to be absolutely clear, we spoke early on Friday morning in Asia. That was the middle of the day on Thursday in California. Now, if you're to make sense of the privacy proposal before Congress at the moment, Amy and Mike's analysis should be your first port of call. It's online and ready for you to read. You'll find it at mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for the very best and very latest of MLEX's reporting and analysis. You'll also find an archive of this podcast, and we've had some interesting conversations of late with the team, so it won't be hard to find something to fire up your imagination. Thank you for making it this far. You're with James Paniki. This is, of course, MLEX's weekly conversation on regulatory affairs. And up next... Japan's antitrust laws get physical with an online restaurant booking platform. And if you haven't done so already, make sure that you subscribe to MLEX's podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. If you leave a review, you'll help others find the program. Assuming, of course, that one of those platforms' algorithms hasn't messed around with what I am sure would be a five-star vote of confidence in the program on your part. And that brings us to a Japanese court's recent ruling that Tabalog, the country's leading restaurant review platform, had interfered with its search engine algorithm, and in doing so, it had violated the country's competition law. Our Tokyo-based senior correspondent is Toko Sekiguchi, and she has been looking into this decision, and she's speaking here with Mlex's Laurel Henning.
4: So Toko, what was this case about?
1: So uh, a Tokyo-based restaurant chain, um, it was a Korean barbecue restaurant. Uh, The restaurant named uh, Kolabo, um, operated by the company Hanryumura, sued uh, Japan's largest crowdsourced restaurant review site, Tabelog. Um, It's like Yelp, but it focuses just on restaurants, and uh, taberu means to eat in Japanese, so it's, you know, tabelog. And the restaurant claimed that one day in May 2019, tabelog downgraded its star rating of its flagship restaurants, putting it on second and third page search results, which essentially disappeared them from diners who are looking for places to eat and Hanjumura sued Tabelog's operator Kakaku.com, so Kakaku.com is the defendant, in May 2020 for damages of nearly $5 million for lost revenue. Um, Hanjumura also gets uh, reservations from Tabelog, so it says that the downgrade resulted in thousands of lost reservations per day.
4: Okay, so we've got the restaurant operator definitely losing out on business here or claiming that it is. So... What was the central issue here in terms of how or why did this become an antitrust case?
1: So the restaurant claimed that the review site downgraded it and other chamber-operated restaurants um, because it wanted restaurants with multiple outlets to pay more to Tabelog. And how that works is that Tabelog posts restaurants that diners review and restaurants have the choice to do nothing about it, or pay tabi-log money for various levels of membership to post coupons, um, take online reservations, place ads, put on menus, more photos, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so the restaurant said that by lowering scores of um, you know uh, chain restaurants. It would incentivize them to pay more for their membership so that they uh, would, you know, gain um, diners and, you know, eyes that way. And the restaurant claimed that this uh, violates antitrust law as a discriminatory treatment on trade terms and also abusive superior bargaining position. Um, that's a very sort of Japanese antitrust concept, in that uh, a business that has a, a clear superior bargaining position over another um, cannot abuse uh, its position. And so in addition to the damages, the restaurant also requested an injunction of the allegedly unfair algorithm wanted Taboolog to stop using it.
4: Okay. And what about Tabalog's uh, perspective? What did the review site claim?
1: So uh, Taboolog said that its algorithm is a trade secret and refused to detail exactly how it worked, um, just that it places different weight on different reviews for fairness and sort of explaining that how it works is say you know you rate a restaurant with one star and I rate the same restaurant with five stars if you take the simple average of those two reviews a restaurant's overall rating would be three because you know five plus one divided by two but what TabiLog does, it, is, it weighs your stars and my stars differently. And so say you are somebody who writes into di- uh, tablog mostly about, I don't know, like ice cream um, parlors. Then your review on a barbecue restaurant would um, be weighed less than me, who maybe has, you know, 10 barbecue restaurant reviews under my under my name. And so that's what Tabelog claims um is the reasoning behind their weighing the stars differently. And in fact, there have been issues in the past with diners being paid by restaurants to post favorable reviews on the site or rival restaurants posting you know, scathing posts for other restaurants. So Tabala claims that it weighs uh, algorithms you know, controlling for those, um, for those things.
4: Gosh, it really gives um, more of an insight into the idea that the public becomes its own sort of uh, restaurant critic. The idea that my ice cream review will be less, less valuable than yours if you're more specialized in the barbecue restaurant or whatever. That, I like that. I like that um, illustration, Toko. This is clearly a really important case um, it's been described as a sort of first of its kind situation. So, what did the court actually decide here?
1: So, the Tokyo District Court ordered TabiLog to disclose the changes it made to its algorithm and ultimately disagree that they were made to reflect what the review site claims. Um, it found that TabiLog abused its superior bargaining position and ordered to pay about $300,000, but throughout the injunction request uh, by the restaurant side. Uh, Tabilog appealed the decision on the day of the verdict, and the restaurant said, you know, they won the case, but wasn't happy about the reduced damages and the absence of the injunction order. So they also said that they would appeal. Um, so all in all, yeah, it's going to the, uh, or it should be going to the high court.
4: Okay, so there's there's more to come here. And then also, I'm wondering, moving forward, has, how does this sort of set the stage for future court decisions? What's its significance for other potential claims or complaints? So
1: um, that's a, a little hard to tell, um, partly because we can't actually see the verdict for, um, for a reason uh, I'll explain later. Tabilog actually held a very special position in Japan's restaurant industry in that it was the biggest And a lot of uh, diners, I think according to a JFTC survey, like more than 80% of diners um, it uh, surveyed said that they would look at tabelog for uh, restaurant reviews. And so um, it was easier uh, for the court to find tabelog in abuse of superior bargaining position than, say, perhaps other restaurant review sites or review sites in general. Um, having said that, that the fact that the court ordered Tabalog to reveal at least parts of its algorithm, uh, that has never been done in an antitrust court case, as far as uh, the, the lawyers that I've spoken to are aware. And that does set precedence for businesses. They won't be able to hide behind the fact that algorithms are trade secrets and that they can do whatever they want just because, you know, it's the core of their business model. It also addresses the question of competition and algorithms pertaining to search ranks in a way that hasn't been uh, done in Japan before. Um, so far, the JFTC has addressed the issue in research papers and industry b- reports, but it's never been an actual case. Um, the JFTC being the Japan Fair Trade Commission.
4: Okay, so you've mentioned the regulator there, but what was did it have a role in this case at all? Well,
1: actually, the restaurant initially went to the JFTC uh, to consult what it saw was an unfair change in the algorithm, but the JFTC never uh, opened a case. Instead, the regulator conducted a market survey of crowdsourced uh, restaurant review sites um, and addressed sort of exactly the type of behavior that Tabelog allegedly did, Um, However, the report itself uh, categorized similar behavior problematic, but it didn't clearly declare it an antitrust violation. And so with this report in hand, the restaurant went to the court and filed a lawsuit.
4: Okay, and Toko, some of the details of this case uh, you've mentioned, they remain under wraps. What information are we missing exactly? And how would that potentially have been different had the JFTC opened its own case?
1: Yeah, one of the problems with this case is that uh, Tabilog has requested a seal or seal order of the decision. You know, going through the file, uh, the court filings, um, it, it's it wasn't a surprise that the, a lot of the algorithm part was redacted from public view. Uh, however, for the tabelog, or kakaku.com, um, the operator of tabelog, to request a complete seal order of the decision means that the public cannot uh, see the, the actual verdict of the court. Um, I've heard that the request is now at the High Court, and it could possibly go to the Supreme Court if the Tokyo High Court denies that request. And so... If the JFTC were to have been involved, they, they would probably redact a lot of the, uh, the algorithm details, but they, it would also allow the public to understand what was the, anti, the problematic behavior under antitrust law. And because this was a court case, uh, a, a lot of what we can't see could potentially remain in, in the dark for the foreseeable future. You know, algorithms are so complicated that a lot of times operators themselves may not understand the final results. And examples of good manipulation, um, like search engine optimization, of, say, uh, putting government websites above personal blogs, um, is that anti-competitive? And uh, it does also raise the question of if a user wants just a raw search result, is search engine optimization um, beneficial to the consumer? And even if, uh, say, a search rank um, like Tabelog did manipulate to lower a restaurant that pays a lot of money to it to win access, Maybe the end user may actually prefer interference that lowers ranks of saying ad paying businesses in order to take away the bias from the advertisement. So a lot of these issues aren't addressed in the court for, you know, um, because it's not uh, in their position to address, you know, all competition issues. But if the, the regulator had stepped in, maybe these address, uh, issues might have been addressed, which would be a great you know, step forward for algorithms and competition policy. So there's still a long ways to go.
4: There's a long way to go. The idea of debating good and bad manipulation, Toko sounds like opening up a whole area of Pandora's box in terms of antitrust regulation, but thanks for bringing us the details of this groundbreaking case in Japan and for speaking with me today.
0: No problem. Thanks a lot. Toko Sekiguchi is an MLEX senior correspondent covering Japanese antitrust, anti-bribery and corruption and financial services from Tokyo. And she was speaking with Laurel Henning in Sydney, Australia. The tabologue story is, of course, a fascinating one, as you've just heard, and a read of Toko's analysis will add to your understanding of what has happened and why it is so significant. You can find it at mlexmarketinsight.com. There's a tab just under the MNEX logo, it's called News Hub, and you can click on that to get a list of the very best of MNEX's recent reporting and analysis. There's also a link to our special reports The most recent of which is from our global anti-bribery and corruption team and it deals with the international sanctions regime against Russia. It's a great read and it really brings together a range of international threads and it's ready for you to download right now. Now it's with a heavy heart that I have to inform you that today's podcast is over but let me issue the usual rock-solid guarantee that we'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. Today's podcast was presented and produced by me, James Panicki, with the assistance of Emlex's marketing team in London. Thank you very much for your company. I'll catch you again very soon. Bye for now.